Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Eric Ilsley. Number one, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, sir. 21 out of the 31 Bishar recommendations have now been implemented, and the Safeguarding Children and Vulnerable Groups Bill, which will put into place the new vetting and barring scheme, has completed its passage through the House of Lords and will have its second reading in the House of Commons on the 19th of June, reporting progress regularly to Parliament most recently on the 25th of May, and see no need at present to reconvene the inquiry team. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I'm grateful to my uh, right honourable friend for that reply, but as he knows, it is now two years since Sir Michael Bishard made his central recommendation for a police national information technology system. That system will not be available, if at all, until after 2010, and some of the latest cost estimates are up around the £2 billion mark. Can I ask my right honourable friend to reconsider recalling Sir Michael Bishard? First of all, to allow him to judge progress uh, against his recommendation. Uh, and secondly, to make sure that his recommendations don't go the same way as the recommendations that came from Dunblane. Well, I think what is very important, and I totally understand why my honourable friend raises this in this way, is to say that although the full impact recommendations won't come in until later, the data sharing arrangements, and these will incidentally, including the sharing of intelligence, will come in next year. And we will certainly look at how we can speed up the recommendations. But as my honourable friend rightly says, this is going to be difficult and complicated. It requires a lot of changes, not just in police practice, but elsewhere as well. And we've got to make sure that we get the delivery of this programme right. But I would ask him to bear in mind that, as I say, from actually the end of next year, we should have the main data sharing information in place. And if we can possibly um, speed that up, and if necessary, we're perfectly happy to reconvene the inquiry team if that helps, but at the moment we don't think it would do so, then we will, of course, do it. Elvin Wood. Mr. Speaker, the um, Prime Minister no doubt has heard, as we all have, a reference to departments being not fit for purpose, most notably a reference to the uh, Home Office recently. Could the Prime Minister tell the House when... Order, order, order. Uh, I thought that the Honourable Gentleman would have been experienced enough to know that this is a closed question. Uh, Joan Wally. Question number two, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, sir, before listing my engagements, I know the whole House will join with me in mourning the death of Captain Jim Phillipson, who was killed in action in Afghanistan at the weekend. And I know that we all extend our deep sympathy and condolences to his family and friends. Mr. Speaker, sir, this morning I am meeting some ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in the House, I will have further such meetings later today. Speaker, can I also express my sympathy to the families concerned? Will my right honourable friend join with me in wishing the England team every continuing success? And can I ask him, while football is centre stage, Will he also join me in welcoming the report of the, of the Independent European Sports Review, which was initiated under our presidency and under our leadership of our sports minister, Captain Cable? But can I ask the Prime Minister, if, Mr. Speaker, can I ask the Prime Minister if he will set out for the House 
what action he can take on this report, which is designed to protect football and which is designed to... The Prime Minister can answer one supplementary. First of all, I'm, I'm sure we all wish the England team the best of luck uh, tomorrow in their match. Um, secondly, in respect of the independent European report, as I said um, in, in answer to a question a, a few weeks ago, I think there are certain recommendations that are very difficult, for example, that trying to set a, a cap on players' wages. But I think some of the other aspects of the report, particularly those that try to bring greater integrity into the way that some of the uh, financial transactions are conducted, are certainly worthwhile, and we will study the report very, very carefully. David Cameron. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I join the Prime Minister in paying tribute to Captain Jim Phillipson and sending our condolences to his family? It is difficult work that our troops are doing in Afghanistan, and they have our support. In the last 40 days, the new Home Secretary has been hard at work. He's potentially undermined his department's own deportation proceedings. He shelved his own anti-crime campaign at the last minute. He's misled the public over the employment of illegal immigrants in his own department. And now he has criticised judges for their implementation of new Labour law. Can the Prime Minister detect any early signs that this Home Secretary is going to be any better than the last one? <laughs> I, I tell him what I, what I can say. Since he and his Shadow Home Secretary have been complaining about life sentences and prisoners being released early after being sentenced to life. And I want to explain to the House how this has come about. Actually, of these 53 prisoners, the vast bulk were people given automatic life sentences under the Crime Sentences Act of 1997 before we came to office. These were for second offences given automatic life sentences. We actually changed the law in the Criminal Justice Act of 2003 to allow indeterminate sentences to be given. Since then, since April 2005 when the Act came into effect, there have been a thousand of these sentences. Six have been considered for parole. No parole has been given. But that's not the point I wanted to make. The point I wanted to make was that when the Criminal Justice Act came before this House, the Conservative Party voted against it. Right. Let's go straight, let's go straight to the 2003 Criminal Justice Act. And let us look at the case of the Home Secretary's attack on the judge who gave the paedophile, yes, who gave the paedophile a sentence that could turn out to be as little as six years. Isn't it the case that the 18-year sentence was reduced by a third because of the Sentencing Guidelines Council that the Prime Minister introduced? And isn't it the case that the individual could be let out halfway through his sentence, just six years, under the terms of the 2003 Act that he proposed and we voted against? The right honourable gentleman is talking absolute rubbish. The sentencing, yes, he is. The sentencing, the, the sentencing guidelines council was supported. Order, order. Leader of the opposition. The point about the 2003 Act is it means criminals are released halfway through their sentence. I know a, I know a thing or two about the 2003 Act. 
Uh, Mr. Norris, I know you're enjoying yourself, but uh, I'm going to ask you not to shout at the, the, honourable, the right honourable gentleman. I know a thing or two about the 2003 Act because I sat on the committee of the bill. And I tell you, now, let me tell you something I said at the time. If there is one thing that undermines people's confidence in the criminal justice system, it's the feeling that time after time, sentences are handed down, but people are released halfway through them. That's why we opposed it. Now, can the Prime Minister... No, no, hold on, hang on, hang on. Can the Prime Minister... Can the Prime Minister confirm something else? Can the Prime Minister confirm something else? The, o the only reason, the only reason this case, they're shouting because they don't like it. They know they're on the wrong side. They know they're on the wrong side. Can the Prime Minister confirm that the only reason this case can be sent back to the Court of Appeal and a tougher sentence considered, the only reason is because of a Criminal Justice Act that we passed that he voted against? Yeah. All, again, as a government we have done is toughen the ability of the Attorney General. Yes, we have, as a matter of fact. But I want to go back to what he says. He's completely wrong. Under the 2003 Act, if someone is sentenced to over four years imprisonment, in other words, it's a serious offence, they can no longer be paroled at the two-thirds point. And the reason why, since April 2005, there have been a thousand indeterminate sentences and no one's been paroled is because of that act. And when he says his colleagues support tough measures, I have before me a press release just the other day from the shadow leader of the House... It we remember, I think, in this House, debating the 90 days or the 28 days for the detention of suspected terrorists. We were forced, because of his votes, to have the 28 days. Yep. The, shadow leader, the shadow leader of the House attacked us for not introducing this measure quickly enough. The reason we aren't able to introduce it quickly is because he insisted on a longer consultation period which has prevented us doing it. So at every stage, whether it's antisocial behaviour, assets recovery, the Criminal Justice Act, terrorist legislation, he does. He talks tough, but he votes soft. Why doesn't the Prime Minister understand? That the reason criminals aren't let out two-thirds way through their sentence now is because under his legislation they're let out halfway of their sentence. In the last 40 days, the Home Secretary has blamed the judges, blamed the civil servants, tried to blame the public. Will the Prime Minister tell him to stop trying to blame everyone else and get on with his job? I notice the Right Honourable Gentleman, again, repeats the point that is wrong. Since April 2005, an indeterminate sentences, a thousand have been given, six have been considered for parole, none have been paroled. Those are the facts. And as for the rest of the Tory attack, the fact of the matter is, on all these pieces of legislation, they've either voted against them, dismissed them as gimmicks, or refused to support them and tried to dilute them. However... My right honourable friend will be bringing forward further measures and then we will have a chance to see whether the right honourable gentleman and his colleagues are prepared to back up their tough talk by changing the habits of opposition and actually voting for the legislation that does the job. Julie Morgan. Julie Morgan.
I know the Prime Minister and the whole House will sympathise with the extreme distress and trauma caused to the three-year-old child who was abducted and sexually abused in Cardiff and the distress caused to her family who are my constituents in Cardiff North. I know my Right Honourable Friend um, will not want to comment on the individual case, but will he do his best to press the Sentencing Guidelines Council in the review they are already undertaking to make sure that in the most serious crimes with dangerous offenders that there's no longer an automatic reduction in sentence in return for a guilty plea. My honourable friend is, is absolutely right, which, which is, of course, exactly what allows indeterminate sentences so that people will not be able automatically to get parole in the way that they used to get it. And I have a schedule of no fewer than 66 different offences, which under the 2003 Act we extended the indeterminate sentence provisions. And this means, therefore, that even in circumstances where people are considered for parole, there is no automatic right to parole. And I think that entirely meets the point that she is making. And I say this to her further as well, that I think what is also important is simply to realise that as a result partly of the work of the Sentencing Guidelines Council, but also what has happened over the past few years, it's not merely that we've increased the number of prison places, but sentences are longer and actually people are serving longer sentences too. And I think it is important to recognise, particularly in relation to sexual offences, the law now has been considerably strengthened, the powers are there, and I hope the courts use them to their fullest extent possible. Sir Mingus Campbell. Mr Speaker, may I associate myself and my honourable and right honourable friends with the expressions of condolence and sympathy just a moment or two ago expressed by the Prime Minister. In 2003, the Energy White Paper described nuclear energy as an unattractive proposition on grounds of cost and waste. <laughs> can the Prime Minister tell us what has changed now? It certainly can tell them what has changed. First of all, energy prices are rising the entire time, which is why the whole issue to do with nuclear energy is back on the agenda, not just of this country, but many other countries around the world. There are somewhere in the region, I think, of 50 to 60 different nuclear power stations being built this year, including for the first time in a long time, one actually in Europe itself. The second reason is to do with our increasing anxiety over climate change and therefore the need to find clean sources of energy. And the third is in relation to the fact that when we look at our own self-sufficiency in energy, we're about 80-90% sufficient in oil and gas. Over the next 15 or 20 years, that's going to reverse. We'll have to import it. And therefore, for reasons of security of supply, for reasons of rising energy costs, for reasons of climate change, I'm not saying only nuclear is the answer. Of course it's not. There are renewables, there's energy efficiency, there's everything else. But I still think that that has got to be at least part of the debate and argument if we are to make sure that our energy needs are properly and cleanly met for the future. That answers this question. Sir Mingus Campbell, Prime Minister, was not precise when it came to the question of the cost of nuclear power. Can he confirm that the taxpayer is liable for up to £90 billion for the clean-up of the existing generation of nuclear power stations? Who will pay for a new generation of nuclear power stations? Will it be business, the taxpayer, or the consumer? Which will it be? Again, let me just point out to the right honourable gentleman that in respect of the decommissioning costs of existing nuclear power stations, they will of course have to be met in any event. 
The whole point, though, and this is another thing that is changing, is that the tech, well, I hope Honourable Members just listen to the answer, the technology of nuclear power is also changing, and the new generation of nuclear power stations generate around about a tenth of the waste of the previous generation. And therefore, what is important is if we are going to take the correct long-term decisions for the future of this country, this debate has to be engaged in and has to be decided upon now. Jim McGovern. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, last weekend, I was contacted by a constituent, Mrs. Carmen Stupart, who tragically lost her husband, John, in a building site accident over ten years ago. Mrs. Stupart was subsequently awarded over £250,000 of damages through the courts, but she and her family have yet to receive one penny of that money. Her, her late husband's former employers declared themselves bankrupt immediately the award was made, and their insurers, Lombard, exploited a, a legal technicality to avoid making a payment. This government can be justifiably proud of setting up the Pension Protection Fund to protect the pensions of workers whose employers go bust. Can we not now consider extending that protection to compensatory payments made in cases of workplace negligence? And would the Prime Minister meet me to discuss the extremely distressing circumstances of this case? Well, first of all, I'm obviously very happy to meet my honourable friend, and, and incidentally, um, I extend my uh, sympathy to the situation that this constituent has, has experienced. Um, he will know that the um, employment tribunal awards of unpaid are enforced through the civil courts, and the forthcoming courts and tribunals bill, which we intend to publish in draft during this parliament, will set out proposals for the reform of the current system of enforcement. And at the moment, as he quite rightly points out, there is real anxiety that the system of enforcement doesn't adequately meet um, the needs of, of, of claimants. This will give us an opportunity to publish the bill in draft, to debate it and see how we strengthen the law. And I obviously look forward to discussing this issue with him. Cameron. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Multiple sclerosis nurses take the burden off the NHS, they provide high-quality care, and they give patients the treatment that they need. Is the Prime Minister aware that the MS Trust says that because of NHS cuts, a quarter of specialist posts are at risk? Given that each MS nurse saves the NHS £64,000, what will the Prime Minister do to ensure that crisis cuts to reduce budget deficits don't do long-term damage to our NHS? We have to make sure, obviously, that the difficult financial decisions that need to be taken are taken and that we, we make sure that the NHS is in balance. And of course it is the case that the vast majority of trusts are either breaking even or are in balance. It is also important, however, to recognise that even with um, the financial situation the National Health Service, there is a huge amount of additional money going in. And the amount of money that is going in has to be used by trusts in the most effective and efficient way possible. And in relation to MS and also many of the other um, diseases which, which need um, management by the individual and the system over a long period of time, of course we put a massive amount of additional money into those as well. But it's not just MS nurses that are being affected. According to the Royal College of Nursing, 15,000 NHS jobs are being lost. In Banbury, the Horton Hospital, an acute general hospital, is seeing nurses' posts removed, the potential loss of consultants and emergent procedures in, in the maternity unit, and the ending of a full-time children's service. These sorts of cuts are happening up and down the NHS and are profoundly affecting the hospitals that serve our constituents. Yet the Health Secretary, the Health Secretary says this is the best ever year for the health service. Will the Prime Minister take this opportunity to apologise to the thousands of NHS staff for the crass insensitivity of that remark? With a very great respect to the right honourable gentleman, 
I mean, first of all, um, when he talks about the job losses, when we actually look into a lot of these um, so-called job losses, actually there are either posts that aren't being filled or agency workers that are not being hired. Since we came to power, there's around about a quarter of a million additional people working in the National Health Service. Um, in addition to that, of course, we are paying them better than ever before. In addition to that, of course, we are protecting their pensions. And I may just say it's all very well for him to say he's speaking up for the NHS and the nurses. He opposed the extra investment in the National Health Service. Yeah. He opposed the extra jobs in the National Health Service. He opposed the pay deals in the National Health Service. And now he wants to take away their pensions. So whoever else is in a good position to represent them, he's certainly not. 101%, as I've said, behind the police and the security services and the difficult work they do. And I do not want them to be inhibited in doing that work. They have to do what is necessary to protect the public, and they do it in a very fine and outstanding way. Mr. Speaker, given the Prime Minister's government's plans for identity cards will require a complex new IT system, can the Prime Minister tell the House of any major government IT project that has been delivered either on budget, on time, or indeed which works. There's one that's quite closely linked to the identity card idea, which of course is the passport system that required a complicated computer project has worked extremely well. Britain led the world on climate change at the G8 summit last year, and now that the government has pledged to make government offices and agencies carbon neutral by 2012 by offsetting emissions with carbon absorbing and carbon reducing measures, will he ensure that local government follows the government's lead uh, and does the same? I think that um, my old friend is, is right to say that, that local government has responsibility here too. Obviously, it's not for us to enforce that with them, but I, I can assure him we will do our best to persuade local government to join in the central government initiative. He's also right in saying that this country has a key leadership position in the issue of climate change because we're meeting the Kyoto targets because of the, um, the climate change levy and so on. And I do notice, incidentally, uh, that although there was supposed to be a cross-party consensus on this started by the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives, apparently the Liberal Democrats, or is it the Conservatives, have now... It was the Tory fault, was it? Yes. <laughs> Sounds reasonable to me. <laughs> the Prime Minister said that fewer people were getting parole as a direct consequence of his policies. That's wrong. Does he not realise that the reason why fewer people are getting parole is because the probation service and the parole board have been destroyed by this government? Will he not further realise that, that, as a direct consequence of the activities of his government, the parole board is unable to interview directly uh, prisoners who ought not to be released? They are released, and then they go out and, and cause terrible crimes. Yeah. It's no good the Prime Minister shouting at the opposition. He really ought to know the facts before he makes these pronouncements. Yeah. Yeah. Regardless of respect, the fact is that as a result of the Act, as I said, the automatic parole that used to apply at two-thirds of the sentence no longer applies. What we are trying to do, however, in relation to the Parole Board is give a greater say to victims, and I would have thought that's something the Honourable Gentleman would have welcomed. Yes. Iron Biggs. 
Um, if I'm right, Honourable Fenton is serious in his desire to reform public services. It's crucial that the government values public sector workers and continues to work with the trade unions in effecting change. Will he condemn the shoddy way that some Lib Dem and Tory councils have treated workforce recently and reject the Tory argument that public sector pensions are unfair? Yeah. What I, I think is important to recognise is that for all the, the issues that are difficult at the moment in carrying through what is a tough process of public service reform, we have actually, as my honourable friend rightly implies, we've em employed somewhere in the region of over 80,000 extra nurses within the National Health Service, a quarter of a million staff in total. And incidentally, these are not bureaucrats, they're people engaged as frontline staff in delivering good care. And it's true also, of course, that we are paying our nurses and our consultants and our GPs a lot more. I personally think that is a good idea, they are worth it. In return for that, obviously, we want to see the changes made that are necessary. And my honourable friend is absolutely right that it is the mixture both of investment and reform that is at the heart of this, and it appears both the Conservatives and Lib Dems are against both aspects of it. Dr John Pugh. Ron Jones and other Britons have lost the right today to sue Saudi officials for torture. What meaningful legal redress is there for any Briton tortured abroad in the light of the law lord's ruling? Can I just uh, point out to the honourable gentleman that we... We intervened in this particular case in order to ensure that the rules of international law and state immunity are fully and accurately presented and upheld. And that is something that is obviously important for us as a country, as with others. But our strong position against torture remains unchanged. We utterly condemn it in every set of circumstances. Colin Challen. Mr Speaker, another cloud of anxiety which hangs over the future of our energy supplies stems from the reports recently by the Energy uh, electricity generating industries that many of our coastline power stations are vulnerable to the effects of climate change. In the energy review, is the government prepared to consider whether new major power stations should be sited inland, including nuclear ones? Well, I'm sure that in the course of the energy review we'll look at all these um, different issues, but I think what my honourable friends question highlights is the urgency now of the climate change question. It is apparent from all the evidence that's been presented even in the last couple of years that the issue of climate change is not merely that the science is now accepted, it is, it is that the process of warming may be happening at a faster rate than we anticipated. And my greatest worry is that there is a mismatch between the timing of the international community to get the right agreements in place and the absolute necessity of taking urgent action now. David Simpson. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. A senior peace officer in the Republic of Ireland has confirmed that the 10,000 rounds of ammunition found there last week was indeed the property of the provisional IRA. He went on to say that there is still a lot of material out there. Would the Prime Minister agree with me now that the whole decommissioning that was promised, the full decommissioning that was promised to the people of Northern Ireland, in effect, did not happen? I can't agree with that, no, because I think that in the end the, the test for this has got to be applied by um, the Independent Monitoring Commission. Now, throughout the, ho the whole course of um, the peace process over these past few years, we have sought to get some form of independent verification uh, about whether the claims of the IRA or indeed the claims of others are justified or not. For that reason, we introduced the Independent Monitoring Commission. Now, they will look at all the evidence, including statements that have been made by those in the Republic or indeed those in the Police Service of Northern Ireland, and they will make up their minds as a result of that. 
but we have got, in the end, to make our judgments on the basis of what that Independent Monitoring Commission says. If we do not do that, then we are losing the essential objectivity, which is the only way that you can determine claim or counterclaim. And as the Honourable Gentleman will know from his long experience of these issues, there are claims and counterclaims made on all sides of this issue. There's only one way of determining them finally, and that is the process we set up and actually that he supported at the time. Andrew McKinley. Um, can I draw to the Prime Minister's attention that for three quarters of a century it suited the British establishment to suppress the documents and the circumstances relating to the execution of over 300 British officers, British soldiers and officers, often many of them brave British soldiers, who were executed in World War I. Does he recognise that there's an overwhelming support in the country, and I believe in this House of Commons, that he and the Minister of Defence should review these executions and remedy this wrong by granting posthumous pardons, albeit very late in the day? And he should do so on the occasion of this first Veterans Day or the 90th anniversary of the Battle of the Somme on the 1st of July. Yeah. I'm very happy to look at what my honourable friend has said. Uh, I do understand the concern. Um, I will look at it. I will get back to him with a, an answer upon it. I know this is a, a situation which, even after all these years have passed, causes a great deal of distress and hurt to people. Order.